Can archaeology open up doors to ministry? Well, it can, and you might be surprised by how. We're going to talk about that and a whole lot more. This is the Engaging Missions Show, Episode 208, with Scott Stripling. Welcome to the Engaging Missions Show, where we are bringing missions home. Here's your host, Brian Ensminger. Hey, if this is your first time joining us, thanks so much for stopping by. And if you've been here before, I'm glad to have you back. We want to see the body of Christ fully connected and engaged in what God's doing. This week, we're going to be talking about how God has used archaeology to speak into the lives of people around our guests, and also about how it's revealed so much truth that we can so easily gloss over, and even how we can better understand more about what Christ's life was actually like. After this, I'm going to have for you a podcast recommendation. You're going to want to stick around for that because it's a great show. And I'm also going to share with you what we can learn from a recent failed networking attempt. It's a little bit embarrassing, but there are some things we can pull from that, so I want to share that with you. I want to welcome Scott, Bill, and Kevin, who recently liked the Engaging Missions Facebook page. So welcome. It's great to have you. If you're listening and you'd like to connect on there as well, go to facebook.com slash engagingmissions. Now, before we get into today's episode, I also want to mention that I am in the middle of a fundraiser for Global Initiative. This is an organization that's part of the Assemblies of God. They are creating resources for the global body of Christ to engage Muslims with the love of Christ and to engage them with the truth of the gospel. This is a very valuable resource, and I would like to encourage you to take a minute, pray about this, and ask God if he would have you be part of this fundraiser. You can find more information about that at Engaging Mission fund 16 Now I'm going to take a second, just introduce our guest, Scott Stripling. He is an archaeologist. He's the provost of a college. And this conversation with Scott is incredibly powerful. It shows God's grace and reveals another one of the ways that we can discover truth and see how much God loves us. Excellent. Well, Scott, welcome to the show. I'm really glad to have you here. It's a thrill to be with you. <laughs> It's a thrill for me as well. Now, you are the provost at the Bible Seminary in Katy, Texas, and then you're also with Associates of Bible Research in ancient Shiloh in in Israel. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you do in those two roles? Oh, absolutely. First of all, at the Bible Seminary, I serve as the provost and professor of biblical archaeology and church history. So this gives me the opportunity to recruit students to share a vision of the central role that the Bible has played historically and continues to play and should play in shaping what the future looks like. We're able to mentor and help raise up another generation of Bible-believing leaders. And also it helps me grow people who love biblical archaeology and want to be involved in my excavation at Shiloh and other digs as well. And so I work with the Associates for Biblical Research based out of Pennsylvania, although I live in Texas, and we are an organization that's devoted to doing firsthand biblical scholarship. In other words, we're literally digging the Bible, and so I'm fortunate to serve as the director of the excavation, which is most likely the largest dig going on in Israel right now. Wow, that that is truly amazing. And as I think about what you're doing now, the way that you're pouring into people's lives and the way that you're really pursuing the truth of God in these archaeological digs and all of your pursuits, I'm wondering, have you always been on a trajectory toward ministry and toward this kind of thing? Or ha- how, is this, how has your past worked into where you are now? 
Well, that's a very good question. As a child, I came to know the Lord at a young age, had a God conscious, a God awareness. I learned the Bible stories as a child and always knew them, went to church and so forth. When I was about seven years old, I was baptized. When I was about 10, I went forward at a Billy Graham crusade in Dallas, what was called Expo 72, and made a recommitment of my life to Christ. After my parents' divorce when I was 12, I went through, oh, about five years of sort of craziness and questioning my faith. Mm. But just before my senior year in high school, I really had a, a radical redirection and really surrendered my life to the Lordship of Christ and immediately sensed a call to to service. In other words, I wanted everyone else to experience what I had experienced, and that was the goodness of the Lord, forgiveness of sins, and so forth. And my, my interest in the Bible was just addictive. And uh, ultimately, as I, as I tried to understand the, the biblical text then and there and, and apply it here and now, that's what led me into my interest in archaeology, which was the, the literal background of the text. What does, when the Bible talks about a house, what did a house look like 2,000 years ago? When it talks about a street, what did a street look like? And I knew that there were a number of faith lessons and, and paradigm shifts in there if we could sort of peel back the layers of history and get back to the historical Jesus. Wow. Now, as I'm thinking about that, you, know, you, you mentioned that you've got this interest in archaeology and sort of uncovering some of that stuff. But as I understand it, you've also spent some time as a pastor. Did this develop while you were pastoring before? How, how, has, how has your life kind of fit together as the jigsaw puzzle that God has made it? Well, it's a lot easier to answer that now than it was 25 years ago, <laughs> because I can sort of see see the finished product, if you will. But yeah, er, very early on, I had a desire to do ministry. I was also working and teaching and doing other things early on, but I, I was serving on staff at churches at a very young age and became a senior pastor at age 27, worked in various ministry roles, pastoral roles for about 20 years before I transitioned into this, this next phase of my life. Hmm. And, and as you think about your, your history, I know that you mentioned that you've had some, some rough patches. One of the things that I, I like about the way God works in our lives is that he's able to bring so much healing and reconciliation when we submit ourselves to him. How have you seen him bring reconciliation and healing into your life? Well, that's where it started was with me. I, I mean, I was a young man full of bitterness and anger toward God, toward parents, toward step-parents, and just sort of what I sensed was the unfairness of life, and sometimes it was undirected anger, and I was an, an athlete, and so I was kind of a coach's dream because I was a pretty good athlete, and I was full of anger that I like to take out on other people, so, <laughs> you know, I, I was kind of what a coach would be looking for. But ultimately, I was looking for an answer to, to the question of, of how do I reconcile my own sin nature with that of a perfect God, and how do I reconnect? How do I get rid of this, this hatred that's inside of me? And so, yeah, God healed me, and when he did, he healed me completely. And it, it, people that I had hated, I now loved, and people I had despised, I now had, had a desire to, to reach them. So I then became an agent of reconciliation, part of the solution instead of part of the problem. You know, thinking about that, I think 
sometimes it's really easy to gloss over that kind of thing and just say, oh yeah, it's another person that God has transformed. And it's really easy, I think, because we hear about this kind of thing to maybe miss the reality of what God actually did in making you a new creation. As as he did that, was that a process that you had to walk out or is that something that God did instantly in your life? No, it was a process. It, it began with sort of an awakening. I had a Christian coach who invited me to the fellowship of Christian athletes and I respected this coach. And so I went. And when I did, he began to talk to me about the Bible and about God's plan for my life. And he began to challenge me to to read, and I hadn't picked up a Bible since since I was 12 years old, but I went to the book of Proverbs, and he encouraged me to go to Proverbs, find a promise from God in there for me, and to bring it back to our next meeting, and I did, and wow, I was really addicted. I started reading all over the Bible. It wasn't just Proverbs, but mm. you know, I would bring a promise each week, like, Proverbs 16.3, commit your works to the Lord, and then your ways will be established. Just things that really spoke to me. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for out of it flow the very issues of life. And these things began to be rainbow. They began to become life to me. And quite frankly, I became addicted to, to the Bible. But it was a process of me then surrendering my life. I wanted to change and stop doing things that I was doing but I didn't have the power yet to do it. But it started with the desire, and then it went into a discipline, if you will, and then ultimately it it, uh, changed my life. What what are some of the scriptures that are really kind of speaking to your life right now? Well, a lot of the scriptures that I have been meditating on in, in recent days had to do with Shiloh, because this is sort of where the, the Lord has me front and center. But Jeremiah seven twelve, go now to Shiloh. See what I did there because of their wickedness and make it known. First Samuel chapter 3, the Lord continued to reveal himself at Shiloh and to make himself known to Samuel there through his word. And it's just sort of an affirmation that God continues to want to make himself known to us through his word. And this has been a big part of who I am because the Bible played such an integral role in my own transformation and my own destiny that I get excited about seeing others empowered with that same truth. Wow. I, I appreciate you do, that you mentioned Shiloh, because I, I know that that's the, the dig that you're, that you're leading right now. And I, I'm wondering, you know, you've, you've got a lot going on. You have that dig that you're, you're in charge of, basically. Then you're also the, the provost at a college. Seems like you probably have a lot of different things going on in your life, and it could be really easy to lose focus or to, to, to maybe step away from some of the things that are core in your life or maybe even just not get it all done. How are, how are you able to continue to be engaged with God and also be increasingly active in what he's doing on the earth? That's a good question. It's all driven from my relationship with Christ. In other words, my work at the seminary, my work in Israel at directing the the excavation at Shiloh, it's all directly tied to God's call and plan for my life, which is to know Him and to make Him known to others. And that's the passion that drives my life, the vehicles by which I can do that, higher education, theological education, 
archaeology. These are merely tools that enable me to have a platform to establish relationships and to speak into people's lives and to ultimately make disciples. Wow. So let's, let's talk about that platform for just a second, because I think a lot of people might not consider archaeology to be a platform to speak into people's lives. How have you seen God open up doors so that you can do that? Well, we find that there is a tremendous hunger for people to understand they, they know God many times, and they, they may believe the Bible, but they don't know what to do with the, the critics and the doubts mm. that versions that are cast, cast on the Bible. For example, they'll read in a magazine or a journal or a textbook that the archaeological evidence at Jericho does not match the description in the Bible. Yeah. So what do you that, you know, as a, as a believer? Well, you can say, well, I, I believe it anyway. I, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Well, you know, that works for some people, but for others, there are, there are genuine, sincere people who are wanting to, to understand God through creation, through evidence, and so forth. And so we're able to interact with those types of people and, in fact, show them that, like Proverbs 21 says, the first one to present his case sounds right until yeah. another comes along. And when we examine the evidence very fairly, we find that it matches the biblical text very closely. As I'm thinking about this, I would imagine that there are probably also sometimes critics from the other side who might say, well, you say this, but the evidence, you know, you're ignoring this part of the evidence, or you're trying to paint a picture that isn't necessarily accurate because of the, the way that you want to read it. How would you respond to somebody who says that? Well, that's true. That's an accusation that is sometimes hurled at us. From, from the left, from a group known as minimalists. Their desire is to minimize any accuracy that you would find in the Bible. Mm-hmm. On the other extreme would be the maximalists that are sort of, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And while I certainly lean that way, I'm looking for a bridge between the two worlds. And people will accuse us of having a Bible in one hand and a trowel in the other. In fact, I was laughing recently. There was a slew of articles recently on me and on our excavation at Shiloh, and one of them had the headline with the Bible in one hand and a trowel in the other. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's sort of humorous because we take very seriously ancient texts. From Egypt, we study those texts. From Assyria, mm-hmm. we study those, those texts, the king's lists, and so forth. And I take the Bible right alongside those other things as a serious historical document. So no one ever accuses me of having an Egyptian execution text in one hand and a trowel of the other, or an Assyrian king list <laughs> in one hand and a trowel of the other. But boy, if you happen to believe the Bible, then somehow something, something's wrong with you. So I'm very upfront about it. I, 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 my presuppositions are clear. I, I have found the Bible to be a reliable historical document, and I found it to synchronize very well with the ancient literature from Egypt and Mesopotamia. Have you also found any connections between the work that you've done in archaeology and your ability to bridge the gap into other cultures and understand more about them when you're talking to them about Jesus or about the Bible? Oh, absolutely. The, the more cross-cultural experiences that one has, the more ability he has to communicate to those different people groups. And so everyone in these different cultures is wanting to understand who Jesus is, what the Bible's all about, even if they're not believers, this is something of interest to them. And so the fact that I have a level of expertise in those areas makes them ask me questions that they might not ask a normal person or a normal sort of a preacher. 
And so I'm able to then use that and bridge it into faith connections. And I'll give you one example. Yeah. Sitting right next to me right now is a silver coin that I excavated last year at our previous dig at Kerbin El Makadar, which was biblical eye of Joshua 7 and 8. And we spent 21 years at that excavation, closed it last year, and then began the new dig at Shiloh this year. In our years of excavating at Kerbin El Makadar, which is nine miles north of Jerusalem, we excavated 1,400 coins. That's more than any other site in Israel besides Masada, which doesn't really count because it was a destination and everyone was taking all their money with them when they went there. So this is quite phenomenal, 1,400 coins. Of those coins, 1,393 are bronze coins, two are gold, and five are silver. So just think about those percentages. Two gold, five silver, 1,393 bronze. Now, go back to Luke chapter 15, the famous chapter of lost things. You've got a lost son, a lost sheep, and a lost coin. Jesus said there was a woman who had 10 silver coins. Ah, she lost one of those silver coins, and so what did she do? She lit a lamp, so it was nighttime. There was a sense of urgency. She swept the house until she found that coin. Well, now that we know the scarcity of a silver coin, and by the way, this particular coin is worth about two weeks' wages. So Mm -hmm. she had 10 of those. That's five months of income. And so this woman was well off. I mean, that's what our financial planners tell us we should have in the bank is about five months' income. Well, this woman actually had it. She lost one of those coins. Well, now that we know, based on archaeology, how rare a silver coin is, do you see how that illuminates the biblical text? Yeah. Okay, it doesn't doesn't change the biblical text, but it illuminates it. So when I'm talking to someone about archaeology and numismatics, which is our coins, I can begin with numismatics, and then I can just segue immediately into the story of Jesus and what he said about this woman with the coins. And then I I trust the Holy Spirit to then work in their heart. And many times we see an an immediate response or sometimes a delayed response, but I'm always confident that the Spirit is working. That is incredibly powerful. You you mentioned in your book that you've uncovered a good bit of stuff about the early cultures and some of the ways that the church operated, that they've really revealed a lot about their lifestyle. And I'm wondering— what can what you've discovered about the early church and about the the land that they lived in inform us as we live in our culture about how we could approach our, walking out our faith? Mm. Well, that's a good point. I'll give you one example. We actually excavated a 4th century church building, which was built upon 2nd Temple period remains from 1st century B.C., 1st century A.D. But in excavating this Byzantine period church, When I finished excavating it and I had all the measurements and all the documentation, I was looking at the dimensions, and I was actually discussing it with our architect, Dr. Lane Rittmeyer, who's quite renowned. He's the world's leading expert on the Temple Mount. And Dr. Rittmeyer and I sort of simultaneously realized that the dimensions of our church were identical to the dimensions of Solomon's Temple. Hmm. This is very interesting, built on a ratio of two to one of sacred or holy to most holy space, that was identical to the way that the early Christians were building their churches. Well, up to this point, we had no idea that the early church was seeing themselves as the temple of God. I mean, we read in 1 
Corinthians 3.16, 1 Corinthians 6.19, you are the temple of God, but that they were architecturally displaying that, we had no idea until the archaeology brought that about. And so this, how does this help us live out our lives? Well, what did the, where did the dimensions of the temple come from? They came from the tabernacle. And, of course, that's what we're now excavating at Shiloh. And, and we think about verses like John 1.14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So as we understand the temple and then the tabernacle, we begin to understand the incarnation, as per John 1.14, of what it, what, what it means that Christ came and tabernacled among us, and then how we become a living tabernacle for him. Wow. As you think about that, you've, you've clearly discovered a number of things. And you know, the, the ratio, I mean, that's something that you'd really have to kind of be looking for that to even discover that it's there because there's not really anything telling you that you should tie those two pieces together and then start going down that. What, what of the things that you've discovered has been the most surprising or the most encouraging? Well, first, let me go back to, to your previous comment yeah. for a second. It's not necessarily that I was looking for that observation, but when one reads the Bible every day mm. of one's life, for 40 years, then that information is in there. And then when I'm exposed to those dimensions, then it, 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 it clicks. So it's not that I was looking to make a connection. It's that I had an awareness because I am an avid Bible reader. Yeah. So, so we're, we're not necessarily out to uncover like a buried treasure, but we are there with open eyes and, mm-hmm. and open ears to hear and to see what, what it is that we're excavating. And I, I think your next question was, what are some of the most interesting things that we've excavated? Yeah, or what's been most surprising, either of those? That's always a, a hard question <laughs> for me to answer because everything is so interesting. Maybe I'll start with the most recent. Yeah. The, the excavation at Shiloh this summer we are uncovering the fortification wall, which is about 5.3 meters wide. It encircles the entire site, which is somewhat, somewhere around eight acres in size. And we are right next to the area of the ancient tabernacle. And we excavated this summer probably three times the quantity of bone that we would normally excavate in a similar area. Hmm. And so this is just shouting at me. I mean, sacrifice. The whole idea of the tabernacle at Shiloh for over three centuries was daily sacrifice. And this gets back to that most basic question that we started talking about today, Brian, which is how do I, broken as I am, how do I connect with a perfect and a holy God? And the answer biblically was sacrifice. Jeremiah said, I'm sorry, Leviticus 17:11 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And when we're excavating this enormous quantity of bone, which is now being tested, I'll know in a few weeks what percentage is sheep and what percentage is goat and the age of the animals at the time of their death and so forth. And then we'll even carbon date them because I think we'll find that some are very early and will correspond to the, the period of the tabernacle. But to me, that whole bone deposit was very, very interesting because it pointed me back to that most basic of, of human questions, sort of thinking sociologically and anthropologically. So many other things, the material culture at Kerbet el from the first century context also fascinated me because I believe that that was the city of Ephraim of John eleven fifty four, where Jesus spent the last month of his life before the triumphal entry. 
Mm. And if you'll remember back to John chapter 11, this is where the Gospels pivot. In John 11, you have the resurrection of Lazarus. And from there, the, the Gospels pivot hard toward Calvary. The Bible says in John 11:53 that Jesus could no longer go openly among the Jews, mm-hmm. for they all sought to kill him. So he, he retired to a village near the edge of the wilderness named Ephraim, and there he remained with his disciples. Remained until what? Well, until the triumphal entry. So we know a lot about that last week, the week of Passion, but what we've not known a lot about until now is the previous month. It's sort of in a month of silence. Our material excavations there for the first time are shedding light on what that last month of the life of Jesus would have looked like. And so I could go on and on, but there's two examples of some of the the really interesting things that we have found. Yeah, I'm really intrigued now to find out if if there's anything that you can share with us that you've started to discover about what that last month might have looked like. Well, yes, and in fact, the material culture, the, the, the houses that we've excavated, the olive press cave, the mikvot, where they did their daily ritual immersion, this lets us know that Jesus was living the life of a typical first-century Palestinian Jew. They were practicing the, the, the mikvot immersion. They were, they were eating with stone vessels. We know what their, their pottery looked like, and the stone vessels, which were not susceptible to ritual purity, we mm-hmm. found them in abundance at Kerbet al-Makadr. So I think we got as close to the historical Jesus as, as we can, and that original desire of mine to peel back 20 centuries and to get me back to the historical Jesus, I, I feel like was, was closely satisfied there. When we're dealing with the wine presses and the olive presses there and the houses the coins, all of these things that Jesus is telling stories about, houses and coins and sheep, you know, all of these things, we then see them in a first century context. He's, according to the text, he's laying low. He's staying under the radar, but it's just fascinating that this was the only place that he felt safe hmm. was, was at Ephraim. That, that's really intriguing. As you were sharing that, the thing that kind of popped into my mind is the scripture that says that he was tempted in every way like we are and yet without sin. And the reason that speaks to me is because I think for a while, I kind of had this vision of Jesus, like he kind of floated through life just very easily, not sinning and not having any real difficulties or challenges. And and that's not the case, right? But I, I love the way that... You, oh, go ahead. No, you're exactly right. I mean, I guess we all start reading the Bible that way. We think that as he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, that his eyes blazed over and you know, he sort of wandered out. <laughs> yeah. You know, he wandered from here and he healed someone. Then he wandered over there and he fed a multitude. No, he was a sentient being. He was self-aware. He was aware of his environment, of the political realities of his world. Mm. And I'll, I'll spell this out like this. After the death of Herod the Great, the land of the Bible was divided three ways between the descendants, the surviving descendants of Herod the Great. That would be Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, and Herod Archelaus. Hmm. When we read the New Testament, if we can have a map next to us of those political jurisdictions, we'll see that where Archelaus is in charge in Judea, Samaria, until he's replaced by Roman procurators, and Herod Antipas, who later condemns Jesus to death, is in charge in the western Galilee, where Nazareth is, and in Perea, where John is baptizing. So it's a split jurisdiction. And Herod Philip is in charge in in the eastern Galilee. So when Jesus is moving, it says 
he he healed this man, and so the, the Pharisees wanted to kill him. He crossed the lake to the other side. Hmm. Well, guess what? Now he's in a different political jurisdiction. They can't yeah. touch him there. So when it says that Herod wanted to kill him, and then he moved, these movements, my point is, are very strategic. He's being led by the Spirit in the same way that you and I are led by the Spirit. He's aware of his environment, and God is speaking through all of these circumstances, just like he does for us. So that encourages me that God leads me by the Spirit. I don't have to be glassy-eyed and just sort of wander from one place to another. Mm. In the, the person that he has made me to be, my own personality, my own worldview, God leads me through that. Wow. I wonder how our lives would be different if we really had that perspective, if we really understood the reality of how the Spirit led him and some of the things that you've just outlined. I wonder how that would impact my life. Have you found beyond just what what you've mentioned that it's impacted you in additional ways? Oh, absolutely. The the If the big question is WWJD, <laughs> then yeah. as, as we understand the historical Jesus, of course it impacts me, and, and think about it this way. And here's sort of what transitioned me from being a full-time pastor to being an active minister. I preach most weekends in churches. I travel all over the place and, you know, all over the world in different states, and, you know, I'm able to communicate the gospel in a, to the faith community and outside the faith community. But the, the big transition for me was I had a sense, Brian, that the way that we do church— may not be exactly what he envisioned, okay? Mm. When Jesus and John were sitting around 2,000 years ago talking about this thing called the kingdom of God that was going to revolutionize and radically change everything, and what it was going to look like, I, I just had the sense that the way that we portray that may not have been exactly how they intended for it to turn out. Mm. And that's not a slam on the church because I am a man of the church, all right? But my sense is that maybe they envisioned that it would be a little bit different. But the Jesus movement was maybe something slightly different from Christianity. And that's what motivated me to begin to peel back those layers of centuries to get us back to the charisma, to the actual core of the gospel message. Who was the historical Jesus, and what was his message to them then and there, so that then we can accurately portray it to our world here and now? Wow, that, that's it, that's great, and I'm glad you mentioned that. It's almost like you're looking at my notes because one of the things I was going to ask about was that transition from pastor to professor and archaeologist, and <laughs> you, you you really kind of nailed that. One of the things I'm wondering, as you shared that, as you look at you know who Jesus was and how the church functioned and who the church was, what do you think they would speak into our lives that would draw us closer to the reality of a relationship with God and with each other? Great question. I, I really believe that their passion was discipleship. We we misquote the Great Commission a lot. Go into all the world and preach the gospel is how we quote it. <laughs> That's not what it says. It says, go into all the world and make disciples. Okay, Preach the gospel, making disciples teaching them to obey, teaching them to observe. And in other words, I think it would be relational. And I'm not against the institutional at, at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, we uh, do need institutions, but our focus would be on relational Christianity, on connecting with people. And I think a lot of times we're answering questions that no one's asking. 
And I think Jesus and John would just go like, Scott, <laughs> come on, man. You know, you're, you're answering questions no one's asking. If you're impressing them with your theological knowledge, that's not what the 99% of the people care about, okay? They care about those bones, all right? Back mm. to the message of sacrifice. I'm screwed up. God's perfect. How do we build a bridge between the two? Those are the types of things that people normally want to hear about. Yes, it is good that we can dialogue on, on an academic level when we need to so that we can defend the faith. I mean, Jude verse mm-hmm. 3 urges us to defend the faith. But I think what the advice they would give us is to stop answering questions that no one's asking. You've mentioned that, the the stop ask, answering questions that nobody's asking as a person who's been in the church for a while, I don't know that I necessarily have a good sense sometimes for what the real questions are that people are answering. What, what kinds of questions are you seeing that need to be answered or ministry opportunities that need to be taken advantage of? Well, empowerment, identity, forgiveness. What does righteousness look like? What does holiness look like? I think sometimes we put an emphasis on outward things, you know, what you, you where you go or how you dress or, you know, sort of a, a cookie cutter stance that we try to impose on people yeah. instead of answering the the core questions of how they can connect with God and then trusting God to to change them and transform them into His image and not necessarily into my image that, or your image. Yeah, that that's good. I, I know it's hard for me, you know, when I'm raising my kids to try to not turn them into a little me. I want them to turn into who God's created them to be, but <laughs> I feel so poorly equipped to do that kind of thing. It's so hard sometimes to discover how God's made them. And I appreciate you bringing that up. On a similar note, I would imagine sometimes people are either involved in the marketplace or even involved in ministry, and they start to wonder if what God's, you know, if what they're doing really matters in the kingdom, how would you encourage or challenge somebody if they were in that situation? Well, absolutely, because we have to have identity. And when we tap into this, what Rick Warren called the purpose-driven life, or call it vision-driven or, or whatever mm-hmm. term you want to I think that is so critical. If Once we know who answer these basic questions, who am I, what is my purpose, why am I here, where am I going? When we focus on those and when we get answers to those, now we really do have a vision-driven life. And all of a sudden, I've tapped into the supernatural power of God. My life has come into agreement with God's plan, and I have this incredible energy and enthusiasm and drive because I'm the, the wind is at my back now, and I'm working in cooperation with God. He's speaking with my voice and reaching out with my hands, seeing with my eyes, as opposed to me sort of trying to do my own thing and make a name for myself. Oh, yeah, that's, that's really good stuff. I would like to maybe shift and just talk more specifically about your book for a couple of minutes. I know that you publish, or I would assume that you publish a lot of white papers. You're involved probably in a lot of research journals, but you've also got a book. Can you tell us what's the name of your book and what is it about? Okay, well, The Trial and the Truth I wrote originally 10 years ago in 2007. It's a, a book which endeavors to to point out the synchronisms between the archaeological data and the biblical text from a geographical and chronological framework. I updated it, and the new version was just released a couple weeks ago, the second edition, because there have been so many things that have happened in the world of archaeology in the last 10 years. So I updated it with the latest finds. I tweaked a number of things. I improved the footnotes. And a few things that I've changed my mind on or softened my views, and I 
tried to go back and, and rework those things a little differently. So I'm super excited about it, and it's been adopted as a, as a textbook by several universities. We'll be using it this fall, in fact, at the Bible Seminary for our biblical archaeology course. But for those who are interested, or they'd at least like to have a resource at their fingertips, when a question comes up, when someone says, well, I heard that archaeology contradicts the Bible, hmm. well, they can go to my book, they can look at the index, and they can get a rational answer to that objection. I appreciate that. I I really do. I I read the book. I found it incredibly powerful. I will admit there were a few of the terms that took me a minute to understand, like synchronism. Can you explain that to us? Okay. A synchronism is a coming together. So we have the, the biblical text, and our problem for the most part, Brian, is that we're Westerners. We're reading an Eastern book. It was written by Easterners to Easterners. Mm. And we're Westerners. We were trained in Western ways of thinking. So what a synchronism does is it takes the material culture and then it connects it and applies it to the biblical text. So the Bible says this, and then here's what we found in archaeology. The two come together. And and I could give you many examples, but I'll, I'll give you this one. Take, for example, in Hezekiah's tunnel in Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that Hezekiah built a tunnel to redirect the water system of Jerusalem so that the city would be spared from the Assyrians. Hmm. Now, when the tunnel was explored back before World War I, there was an inscription found inside, now known as the Siloam inscription or the Hezekiah inscription, which tells the same story that's told in the Bible. Hmm. So here the Bible says it, and we have an archaeological inscription that tells the same story, and we can epigraphically, that's handwriting style, we can date it to that to the right time period. Now that's pretty powerful. The Bible says it, and here's the exact same thing said in the historical record. Now, if I could give you hundreds of examples like that, which I can, at some point, I think a fair-minded person is going to have to conclude that the Bible is a reliable historical document. Yeah. And The reason that this matters is because if the Bible is true, Brian, then the God of the Bible has a moral claim on our lives. Right. If the Bible is true, then the God of the Bible has a moral claim on my life. Now, that's a problem for people who are committed to living immoral lives. You can see where they would want to doubt. They would want to listen to what a skeptic would have to say instead of what the objective evidence has to say. That, that's a powerful statement right there. I remember another guest that I had on, his name was Tony Hedrick. He was talking about atheism and how most of the people he encounters aren't actually theological atheists or r- rational atheists. They're actually moral atheists. They just don't want there to be a God. And so they come up with ways to to explain that. And I appreciate you sharing that. As, as I'm thinking about this, you know, we've mentioned your book. Is there another book or another resource you'd recommend for us? Well, yes. First of all, let me get in a, a plug for my book that I wrote the previous year in 2016, yeah. co-authored with my friend, Dr. Ralph Peel, entitled Somebody Call 911. And we released it on the 50th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks uh, on America. And it's a play on words. It's sort of a triple entendre. Mm. And it's a book about covenant, and it's a book about connecting with God. And it's essentially saying we all recognize we're in a mess. Does the Bible offer biblical blueprints for how we should get out of this mess? And I contend that it does. And so we we explore what those blueprints are, and then we share our own faith pilgrimages 
and how we got to be where we are at this time. So the travel and the truth and somebody called 911, I would certainly recommend and hope that people would take a look at. Absolutely. And I, I really enjoyed it. I didn't read the whole manuscript from somebody called 911, but I did read your story. And I really appreciated how you shared with, with real transparency, but also with really good perspective, how God had worked in your life and, and the experiences in your life. I am wondering now, as we're starting to draw this to a close, how can we best pray for you? Well, I appreciate that so much. I really value the the prayers of of your listeners and our friends out there for our work in Israel, that we would be able to glorify God through the quality of work that we do and through the relationships that we establish. And I say with, with Paul in Romans 11, I pray that all Israel would be saved. And I pray that all, all the Palestinians and all the Jews and all the, the ancient conflicts that, that we are literally right in the middle of, because we're working in the West Bank, we pray that God would use our work to, to be a means of reconciliation, that people would know that there is a God in Israel. And I would, I would just covet people's prayers, especially for that. You know, when I got into this, this work a few years ago, I, I believe that the Lord said to me, Scott, I'm going to give you an indomitable spirit. Hmm. Nothing will ever be able to discourage you. Nothing will ever dissuade you. No amount of, of difficulty, no amount of persecution, nothing is ever going to phase you. And that's exactly how it's been, Brian. I've, I've been unfazed by, by opposition or criticism or difficulty or anything else. Because that's what I, I, once I had that identity and I knew what I was supposed to be doing, then I had the empowerment from God to do it. And it's, all things are possible to him who believes. Good, good word. And for those of you that are listening, I would like to encourage you to go ahead and take a minute, pause this and take a minute to pray for Scott and the, the incredible work that God is doing in and through his life. Pray that it would be effective, that they would be able to overcome any encumbrances and then all of the things that he asked for as well. Then come on back and stop by the show notes, which will be at engagingmissions.com slash Scott Stripling. That's where you'll find links to the books he mentioned, as well as ways to connect and some some other things around the show notes. I I think you'll find them really valuable. Scott, I want to say thank you to you for taking the time to do this. I can't begin to tell you how much I appreciate your book and also your time this afternoon. I really appreciate it. So thank you. It was a real honor to be with you, Brian. Blessings to you. I mentioned to you that I had a podcast recommendation. This is brought to you by missionalaudio.com. It's a place where you can go to find podcasts and audiobooks related to missions, church planting, evangelism, missional living. This week's recommendation is a podcast called Now is the Time. It's by a missionary, Caleb Suko, who, along with his family, is a missionary to Ukraine. He shares teaching and insights. It's, it's a great podcast. I've followed it for a couple of years. He was actually one of the early guests on the Engaging Missions show as well. It was great to have him as a guest. His podcast is really worth checking out. It's at sukofamily.org. But if you visit missionalaudio.com, you'll find it listed along with other podcasts and audiobooks that you may want to check out. I'd recommend that you give that a listen. And if you know of a podcast or an audiobook that should be or maybe should be considered for inclusion there, please let me know. Just visit missionalaudio.com and make a suggestion there. I want to find every resource that we can make available that can be tied to missions or church planting or missional living that would be valuable for people so that there's a place they can go to find these so that they can listen on the go and learn and connect and continue to grow and be challenged. That's missionalaudio.com. 
So what can we learn from a failed networking attempt? Well, I'd like to think actually there's a lot. And I do want to preface this by saying this is from my experience. And it's a little bit embarrassing, but I wanted to share it with you. And I'll kind of set the stage here before we get too far into this. So at least in my perspective, a lot of times it seems like in life, some people kind of get it and some people don't. And we can see this in things like computers or music or math or any other number of things. Some people learn certain things really well and other people maybe don't. So from time to time, I see people who struggle a little bit with computer stuff and it seems really simple to me. But on the flip side, there are people who clearly understand other people and understand relationships and networking and those people just absolutely blow me away. It's something that I don't consider a really strong skill set. And if you're a missionary, or perhaps if you're working with a missionary to help create connections, this is a really valuable skill. It's something that could be really valuable for me in terms of growing this show and meeting people and helping connect missionaries with other, other people. Well, it's not something that I'm really great at, and I've been trying to get better at it. And this experience isn't really related so much to this show as just what happened. So I was contacted by a friend who was struggling a little bit. He was looking for a job. He had some ideas of what he was looking for. And I thought of somebody that I knew in the same general area. So I thought, hey, maybe I'll connect these two people. And, and I reached out and said, hey, you know, are you are you willing to connect? Are you interested in connecting? But the problem is I didn't necessarily understand some some of the pieces that were going into this. So I didn't have a really good read on the person who had contacted me looking for help about specifically where he was. And I kind of misread that situation. And so what I ended up doing, instead of creating a valuable connection or, you know, creating a connection where everybody knew on the front end kind of what was going on, I ended up creating a connection where there was some confusion and it led to some frustration on both sides of that connection both the person who had reached out to me and the person that I reached out to because they both kind of felt like it didn't go really well. And that was that was really troubling to me because it was something that I wanted to have done a really good job. And so I got some feedback and it was really valuable feedback. And if you're the person that provided the feedback and you're listening, I'm not going to name your name, but I want to say thank you for providing that. I know it was probably not really easy to send that feedback, but I appreciate it. And one of the things that I think that I probably read incorrectly was, you know, the person who'd reached out to me, I thought he had a little bit better handle on what he was looking for. And if I had understood a little bit better, I might have recommended that he get some coaching or get get a mentor or somebody who could maybe help him come up with a little bit better picture of what he was looking for before I started to connect him with people who might be able to create connections for him, because if they didn't know what he was looking for, then they're not really able to help him. So I did both people a disservice by not understanding that. But I want to share with you also what I pulled out of this because it might be valuable for you. And I've got some some things that I pulled out of this that are specific to the people that were involved in this. First, if you're a person and you're trying to look for some networking opportunities, whether you're looking for a job or you're looking for connections to help fund a ministry or you know maybe perhaps be sent overseas— be really clear on what you're looking for before you start asking for those connections. If you don't know what you're looking for, find somebody who can help you get really clear on what you're looking for. There are a number of great books to help with this kind of thing, but that's one of the recommendations I would have. If if you're looking for help also, and the connections you're getting aren't maybe yielding as much fruit as you had hoped, 
I would also encourage you, rather than getting frustrated, to maybe take a look at the actual networking process and see if there's something about that that you can address. Because getting frustrated with people who are trying to help you, and that's what happened in this situation, isn't really going to help anybody in this situation. Then the recommendation for the people who were in my position, if you're trying to connect people together, make sure that you do all of your research. It's really kind of crummy if you end up, as I did, passing a problem on to somebody else as a very first connection when that maybe could have been handled better by, by you or by the person who's actually asking for help. And finally, for everybody involved, there's grace in there. If you mess up, figure out, you know, take the feedback, figure out what you'll do differently next time, and then keep going. I really hope this is something valuable for you. If there's somebody that you know who might be struggling with networking, maybe they're better at it than I am, but still struggling a little bit, maybe there's something from this that you would share with them that could be valuable. And also, if you have feedback from me about maybe some things that I missed, I would love to hear that from you because this is something I want to get better at. And the only way I can do that is by practicing, but I don't want to practice and mess up a bunch of relationships doing that. So I would really love to have your feedback. You can send that to feedback at engagingmissions.com. And again, if you have any suggestions or if you know somebody who could benefit from this, please feel free to share it with them. You can even share some of the embarrassing parts of my experience. This week, we've heard some incredible stuff from Scott Stripling, some things about archaeology and some some of the incredible things that God has done in his life. We've also gotten a podcast recommendation, the Lift Up podcast at missionalaudio.com. And you've also heard from me about something that I picked up from a failed networking attempt. I want to say thanks to Scott Stripling for making the time to be here. I really appreciate that he did that. I know that he's incredibly busy and his time is very valuable. And so I appreciate that he took the time to do this. I also want to thank Jeff and Gabby for their involvement in the Engaging Missions show. What they do is incredibly valuable and I very much appreciate it. And I also want to thank you. It's important to me that you're here, and my hope and my prayer is that you continue to find this valuable, that it's something that's incredibly worthwhile in your life, a way to connect with God, a way to hear what God is doing in the earth, to be equipped, challenged, and inspired. You'll find show notes for this week's episode at engagingmissions.com slash Scott Stripling. That's where you're going to find ways to comment, to connect, to share. You'll find links to resources. You'll find timestamps in case there's something that you want to go back to and listen to one more time without having to listen to the whole thing. Make sure that you come back next week. We're going to be hearing from Mark McGoldrick about some of the really amazing and surprising things that God is doing now in Atlanta. Probably the best way to do that to make sure that you don't miss it is to subscribe using your favorite podcast app. You can visit engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. And if you have a story about how you have been equipped, challenged, or inspired through the Engaging Missions show, I would love to hear that from you. You can send your email to feedback at engagingmissions.com. I would love to hear what this is doing in your life, and I'd also like to hear if there's something that we could do to make the show better. I would love to have that feedback. It's your feedback that helps me understand if I'm meeting your needs and if there are things that I can do to improve. So I'd very much appreciate that. Thanks one more time for being here. I appreciate you, and I appreciate that you took the time to spend it with us this week. Thanks for listening to the Engaging Mission Show. You can find more great content like this along with show notes by visiting engagingmissions.com or by subscribing to the show in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back next week.